good afternoon or good evening wherever you are. Welcome everyone. Uh, Ezra Vogel, who organized and initiated this forum, used to remind us that international relations are built on three pillars. One, of course, is diplomacy, but second one is military strength and strategy. And third is the economy. We're privileged to have two eminent experts to help us to understand China's military strategy in the new era. We organized this forum, decided we need an expert on China's military strategy to moderate this session so we can gain a more in-depth, a nuanced understanding of the military strategy. I'm going to introduce the guest moderator, Andrew Erickson, and then he will introduce the speaker, Professor Franville. Our guest moderator is Professor Andrew Erickson, a longtime colleague and friend of Fairbank Center. He's a associate in research at the center, published several seminar papers on military strategy and maritime studies, and won, and won many prizes. Professor Erickson, is a professor of strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. I want to tell you that's a preeminent place studying military strategy in the United States. Andrew led the Naval War College to establish the China Maritime Studies Institute. That was done in 2006. Andrew is a top expert on China and Japan and their sea power and the maritime history and strategy. It's my pleasure to welcome you and thank you for moderating this session, Andrew. Now it's yours. Uh, Professor Xiao, thank you so much uh, for that uh, very kind uh, introduction. Of course, uh, everything that I'm uh, saying today just represents my own personal views, uh, not the policies or estimates of the U.S. Navy or any other organization of the U.S. government. Uh, that said, I can't think of a better time to be uh, discussing uh, China's military strategy uh, in this challenging new era and I can't think of a better uh, scholar and specialist uh, to be sharing his insights with us than uh, Professor Taylor Fravel of uh, MIT. As uh, most will know, uh, uh, Taylor is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and the Director of uh, the uh, 
Security Studies uh, program uh, at MIT. Uh, he holds a PhD from Stanford, as well as other degrees from uh, Middlebury, uh, the London School of Economics, and Oxford, uh, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, in addition to uh, numerous uh, peer-reviewed publications, uh, he has published two landmark, or perhaps I should say uh, C-mark uh, books, uh, really invaluable references in the field that also stand the test of time amid a deluge of data that uh, is constantly changing uh, at, the, at the detailed uh, level. Uh, Strong Borders Secure Nation uh, outlines uh, China's uh, longtime uh, border challenges, uh, both at land uh, and at sea. And uh, most recently, he's published Active Defense, uh, China's Military Strategy since 1949. And I think the seminal research uh, behind that book uh, will probably be a large part of his uh, discussion and insights uh, with us today. Um, I want to give Taylor maximum time uh, to share those insights, uh, but let me just offer the perspective that uh, he embodies the ideal, in my mind, of the scholar who combines academic rigor with real-world uh, relevance. And um, I think uh, I certainly felt this in, in reading uh, this wonderful book, Active Defense. You can see all the post-it notes I felt compelled to use to mark the key data points, but yet, in good scholarly fashion, he was able to distill everything down to a hyperlogical two by two uh, matrix. So uh, to me, that's the ideal of what uh, should be uh, produced here. And I think that'll make his insights particularly relevant uh, today. I'll just add one more uh, personal note. Uh, several nights ago, as I was struggling to understand just what sort of a feature exactly is Whitson Reef uh, in the Spratleys? Uh, Taylor was the first person I reached out to and not surprisingly, uh, he rapidly furnished uh, the most uh, logical and comprehensive uh, documentation uh, to, to explain that. So, so again, this uh, what we call uh, walking on two legs as a scholar and a public intellectual. Um, I'll now turn it over to uh, Nick Drake, who will uh, explain uh, today's logistics, including the point that this talk will ultimately be posted on the Fairbank Center's YouTube channel, a link of which will be provided on uh, the website uh, accompanying the announcement of this talk. Uh, Nick, over to you. Thank you. Um, yes, so this will be this is being recorded and will be posted um, if you want to watch it later. Um, and uh, if you would like to ask questions at the end, which we hope you will, uh, there's a Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Uh, in order to ask questions, just click into that and, and type your question into that and we will try to get through as many as possible. Um, because this is being recorded, if you do want to ask a question anonymously, you may do so. There should be an option as you are asking the question to submit it anonymously. So please do so. Otherwise, please identi identify yourself in your institution so we know who's asking the question. Um, thanks. And I'll turn it over to Professor Frabel. Um, <clears throat> great. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm really uh, delighted uh, to be here with you and really uh, uh, want to extend my thanks and gratitude to the Fairbank Center uh, for hosting this event and for inviting me. And I also simply want to take a moment 
uh, to acknowledge the memory of Ezra Vogel, who uh, is a fixture in the China field, not just in this seminar, but certainly over the entire uh, sort of scope of his career and who uh, played a very important role uh, in various stages in my own uh, uh, development as a scholar. And so uh, I guess I, I offer this talk today uh, in his uh, memory and in gratitude for uh, all that he has uh, taught us. Um, so I'm going to talk about China's uh, military strategy in the new era. This is intended uh, sort of as an overview of China's approach to military strategy in the past and in the present, with some speculations about the future. I want to try to answer the following questions for you. How does China define military strategy? How many military strategies has China had since 1949? Uh, what is the current military strategy? And why was it adopted? Uh, how does China approach nuclear weapons? And then what is sort of sort of China's sort of the future of China's uh, military strategy? Um, so that's sort of the general outline of, of where I'd like to go today. But before doing that, I sort of thought we should have a strategic uh, palate cleanser of sorts and just simply uh, reflect on uh, China's strategic environment because a military strategy, of course, is defined as how a state plans and prepares to use armed force to achieve political goals. Um, but uh, those calculations and the development of strategy in a very basic sense are also shaped by a state's uh, strategic environment. And here, what I'd like to do is sort of contrast uh, sort of China's circumstances uh, uh, with those of the United States, which are perhaps more well known uh, to all of us. So first, we can simply start with the number of neighbors. Uh, China has 14 neighbors on land, uh, where, whereas the United States only has two. This means that China has to sort of um, maintain uh, 14 different sets of diplomatic relations in order to sort of maximize its security, whereas this is much uh, simpler uh, for the United States. Uh, this also means, I think, historically, that China has been quite sensitive uh, to the formation of counterbalancing coalitions uh, that might appear on its periphery. Now, if we extend this uh, into the maritime space, uh, the US has many more neighbors with all of the small states in the Caribbean, and China has more as well. But I think the basic point here still stands. Uh, many, you know, five of China's neighbors have large armies, um, which can uh, project military power on land uh, and perhaps up to or even across uh, the borders. So this means that China has to not only worry about sort of uh, these 14 different bilateral relationships, but the fact that some of these states really mil militarily are quite consequential and quite powerful. Further on this point, right, four of China's neighbors have nuclear weapons, India, uh, Pakistan, North Korea, and, the United and Russia. Uh, this uh, is also perhaps unprecedented. I think China has more nuclear neighbors than any other state. And again, the U.S. has uh, no neighbors with nuclear weapons um, and also no neighbors with uh, large uh, standing armies. Uh, moreover, China has had a legacy of armed conflict uh, with uh, its neighbors and presently still has active territorial disputes uh, with uh, six of them, whereas the United States has stable borders and uh, no disputes. Uh, another element of China's security environment is that four of the states, perhaps on its periphery, might, might be viewed as, as potential failed states or, or at-risk states, uh, states that might be at risk of failing. Um, and uh, this means that China has to uh, worry about um, a different kind of instability on its frontiers. And I think with the United States, uh, of course, the situation is different as Mexico and Canada are uh, quite stable. Finally, China has many states uh, that, that are um, sort of majority Muslim in terms of their religious orientation or, or the religious orientation of their populations, which from China's perspective uh, creates concerns about 
uh, extremist uh, terrorist uh, activities uh, that it might have to contend with or that might spill over into its borders. And again, this is not a problem that the United States considers. Then we can look at two other elements. The first would be adjacent oceans. And of course, the United States is buffered uh, uh, by the Atlantic to the east and the Pacific to the west. Uh, and this really greatly enhances uh, US security, not just because it only has two neighbors, but because it uh, is very hard for other countries to reach the United States. Um, um, by contrast, uh, China has really no adjacent oceans. Instead, it has the first island chain, something Andrew's written extensively about, which, which sort of seeps to sort of hem China in, as it were. And then finally, in terms of treaty allies, uh, China only has one, uh, which is uh, North Korea, in terms of a, a formal treaty ally, whereas the United States has 35. This means that the United States can sort of aggregate capabilities with a large number of states. And North Korea, China's only ally is, in fact, a strategic liability and not a strategic asset uh, from this uh, perspective. And so it's really quite a challenging uh, environment. Uh, not all of these uh, features have, have, have been permanent, but, but, but they are enduring and they don't necessarily uh, change quickly. And so it really sort of outlines um, sort of what China has to consider when formulating a military strategy. And let me just sort of make this point with a few maps as well, um, uh, because, I, because I think all the challenges I, did, I just mentioned are really important for two reasons. Uh, one is this enduring focus on its immediate periphery because it is so complicated. Uh, and, and you can see here right, China and Asia and all of the neighbors it has on land, as well as um, it's, it's sort of um, maritime areas uh, and the fact that um, in some ways it doesn't have open access uh, to the Western Pacific, but is in some ways hemmed in uh, by this island chain uh, concept. But it also means I, I think there's historically been fear of encirclement um, and perhaps even more presently, uh, perhaps concerns that, that counterbalancing coalitions might form around China's periphery at, uh, from China's standpoint, the expense of its security. But there's another way that's also very useful to sort of uh, drive home this point about um, sort of China's immediate focus on its periphery, which is to turn the map in this direction. And so I tried to orient us in Beijing, more or less uh, looking sort of due east uh, from Beijing. And here you can see uh, uh, the island chain, the, what is known as the first island chain, which is Japan, the Ryukyu Islands, Taiwan, the Philippines, and how uh, that sort of blocks uh, China from having a ready access uh, to the Western Pacific, but also is a series of barriers right, that China has to overcome if it wants to extend into the Western Pacific and is a series of land masses on which other countries, uh, most notably the United States, uh, can uh, uh, deploy uh, military forces, especially uh, with treaty allies such as Japan and perhaps in the future, uh, again, uh, with uh, the Philippines. Um, so it's a very uh, complicated environment and that complication um, has not sort of just sort of evaporated with uh, China's really rapid economic growth and military modernization. Many of these uh, challenges uh, remain. So let me turn now to uh, how China views and conceptualizes military strategy. Uh, the PLA has this concept known as the Military Strategic Guidelines, or it was previously just known as the Strategic Guideline. This is the Jinshir Zhang, the Fang And this is how uh, China uh, uh, sort of captures military uh, strategy in its lexicon. And if one looks at the PLA glossary of military terms, uh, this is the entry in which they sort of uh, define as, as representing uh, China's uh, military strategy. These guidelines are issued by the Central Military Commission of uh, the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, which is the main body that a uh, part body within the party, right, that oversees uh, China's armed forces, including the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, as well as the People Armed Police and uh, the militia. 
Uh, so this is this is sort of high level uh, uh, strategic guidance. Uh, there have been nine uh, guidelines or strategies that the CMC has issued uh, since 1949. Uh, the most recent of which was in 2014. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, particular strategy in, in a few minutes. But I wanted to pause here simply to talk a little bit about the content. Um, so these uh, guidelines are meant to, to answer four questions. These are questions that the general uh, Zhang Wanyan uh, posed in late uh, December 1992 when he was tasked with uh, standing up a group to help formulate uh, what would become China's 1993 uh, military strategy. So the strategic guideline has to answer four questions, and I'm going to put them here in plain English and then in sort of in quotes write the actual terms that come from the PLA's own lexicon. So the first question is who will China fight, right? Who is the strategic opponent? This is sometimes referred to as the strategic adversary. But in other words, which is sort of the main the country or the actors that pose the greatest threat to China around which it needs to prepare to, to use armed force. The second question is where will China fight? And this refers to the idea of a strategic direction or a Zhanglia Fangxiang. And uh, China's military strategy, uh, at least to date, has always distinguished between the primary strategic direction or the main focus or, or the center of gravity for armed conflict in the future versus secondary strategic directions where conflict might erupt but are not as important as uh, the primary strategic direction. And in most cases, the primary strategic direction or where China will fight is, of course, associated with who uh, China will fight or who the strategic opponent is. The third question uh, these guidelines answer is what kind of wars will China fight in the future? And this uh, is described as what is the basis of preparations for military struggle? And I know this term military struggle uh, sounds a little bit uh, odd, but basically it's asking what are the requirements of combat readiness uh, for future wars? Uh, what are what kinds of operations are future wars going to be characterized by and, and thus how uh, does China need uh, to prepare to fight them? Uh, and then the, the final question is how China will fight uh, these wars, which includes uh, strategic uh, guiding principles or thought, uh, identifying the main form of operations or so given sort of the general characteristics of warfare, how the PLA should fight, and then the basic guiding thought for operations, which includes uh, how to uh, conduct those kinds of operations at a pretty high level. So again, just to sum up here, right, the guidelines are China's military strategy, de-identify de who China will fight in the future, where China uh, believes it needs to fight in the future, what kinds of wars uh, China will fight in the future, and then finally how uh, China uh, will do so. So as I mentioned, there have been um, nine uh, military strategies uh, since 1949. At the very end of the talk, I'm going to sort of dangle that there may have been a, a, a change in 2019, but my, I myself am not yet um, uh, fully persuaded that this has happened, in part because we don't have a lot of data with which to, to make this analysis. But I wanted to review uh, sort of uh, the earlier strategies with you. They're listed here uh, with the names uh, that the PLA attached to them. And I'm not gonna go uh, into great detail, but happy to talk about specific strategies um, during uh, the Q&A period. But the main point I wanna make here is, is to conceptualize kind of the first five strategies uh, with uh, the last four. And so what distinguishes the first five from the last four, the strategies from 1956 to 1980 versus those from 1988 to the present, that these first five were focused on uh, defending China in the context of a total war in which the adversary would seek uh, to conquer uh, the country. 
Now, this may seem quaint because in, in, a, in, in a very important sense, it's not clear if China is conquerable, but nevertheless, this was sort of the pacing threat for China uh, during you know, the Cold War period. And these first three strategies were actually premised on how to defeat a US invasion, an effort to seize either Beijing or uh, Shanghai. Um, and, and the last two from in 1977 and 1980 were focused on how to defeat a Soviet armored invasion that would uh, come through Mongolia uh, and the steps there and then uh, try to uh, seize uh, Beijing as well. So these were total wars in which uh, China would need, on the one hand, to pre prepare for, perhaps for a protracted fight, but on the other hand, would want to uh, take decisive action uh, early on. Now, these last four strategies are, are all around this idea of a local war. And a local war is distinguished from a total war and not being uh, sort of a war of invasion or an existential uh, conflict in that sense, but rather a, a conflict over limited aims in, in a particular area of uh, the country. And in particular, uh, these local wars uh, have come to focus on uh, areas where sovereignty is contested between China and its neighbors, uh, primarily uh, the border with India, uh, the, the various disputes in the South China Sea, and this also, of course, includes uh, Taiwan. Um, over time, uh, in the last, uh, you know, the last uh, two and a, or three decades, roughly, right, uh, China has gone through sort of four uh, variants of these uh, local uh, war strategies. Uh, the most recent of which is called informatized local wars, or preparing to fight and win informatized uh, local wars. Now, in the book that Andrew kindly mentioned, uh, I focus on. Uh, sort of explaining what I view to be the major changes in China's military strategy since 1949, or the moments when the PLA uh, uh, developed a new vision of warfare to wage war in, in, a, in a new way, which required a deep organizational change in order to, uh, to develop new capabilities. And these changes were reflected in new operational doctrine, in new force structure, um, and in uh, new training, and in particular training uh, new forces according uh, to the operational doctrine to achieve uh, the sort of the, the vision as laid out in um, the strategic guidelines. Now, the, the 1956 uh, uh, strategy was a major change because it marked the shift uh, from mobile warfare, which had characterized PLA operations uh, during the Civil War and really even in the first half of the Korean War to what was uh, then described as positional defense or fighting on a fixed front. And here, this positional defense was seen as essential to defeating uh, a US invasion, or at least uh, preventing a sort of deep penetration uh, by uh, US forces into uh, the Chinese uh, heartland. And the solution here was to focus on something called combined arms operations in which uh, you would uh, sort of integrate uh, with your ground forces, infantry, armor, and artillery in order to achieve much greater effects than just relying on infantry or armor or artillery independently. Um, the, the next major change occurred in 1980. Uh, this actually has uh, uh, the label of active defense, which I'll talk about in just one minute. But this was the strategy to defeat a Soviet uh, invasion uh, that uh, Chinese, Chinese uh, strategists assessed uh, would uh, come through Mongolia, which had become a treaty ally of the Soviet Union in 1966 in an effort to seize uh, the capital. And here, uh, the, the, the problem was not how to defeat an, you know, an amphibious assault, which, would, which was the problem in the 1956 strategy, really how to defeat an, an armored assault and a rapid armored assault. And then the third strategy uh, uh, is this major change was from 1993, and this refers to uh, fighting local wars under uh, high technology conditions. And this strategy marked 
when uh, the PLA uh, shifted from really thinking about uh, the military services such as the ground forces, Navy and Air Force as separate to uh, trying to uh, conduct or execute joint operations, which will be military operations where you try to seamlessly integrate uh, elements from the different services in order to achieve uh, the, the effects that you uh, want to achieve uh, on the battlefield. Um, I'm very happy to talk um, more about the historical changes uh, during the Q&A period and, and, and why I think they occurred when they did. But the, the only other point I want to make here now for the purposes of this talk is to say that all of these strategies from China's standpoint reflect this principle of active defense or uh, Gigi Fang Yu. And this was uh, coined uh, by Mao Zedong in 1936 as offensive defense or defense through decisive engagements. It reflects this idea that China uh, can maximize uh, sort of the initiative uh, when it uh, doesn't strike first, uh, but strike second. So it's sort of a strategy of counterattacking, if you will. Um, and it also refers to this idea at the strategic level uh, that China's uh, military strategy is defensive, uh, focused around either defending the homeland or defending contested sovereignty. It's not offensive, uh, but that once China is attacked it, in any of these contexts, that China will engage in offensive actions at the operational and tactical level in order uh, to achieve a victory. Um, here's just a quick map to show you uh, what one uh, what, what the total war problem was for the 1980 strategy. Here you can see. Um, that uh, in sort of the mid-1970s, PLA strategists identified uh, three different um, uh, routes by which the Soviet Union uh, could invade China. And the one that worried uh, uh, sort of Chinese planners the most was the fact that Beijing was roughly uh, 500 kilometers uh, from uh, the border uh, with Mongolia, and much of the area was sort of open grassy plains uh, on which you could um, move uh, armor uh, very quickly and rapidly. Um, and sort of the main strategy here was to try to tie up Soviet armor in the mountains around Jiangjiakou and see if they could slow down uh, the invasion or even prevent uh, Soviet forces from reaching Beijing in order uh, to, or to buy time to carry out a nationwide mobilization to then uh, repel uh, Soviet forces. And this map here simply shows um, the, the, the 1993 uh, strategy, uh, and it, which really focused on local conflicts and quite quickly um, around, you know, around the time it was put in place, focused on uh, a potential uh, conflict over Taiwan in the context of unification or uh, a Taiwanese bid to pursue uh, formal uh, independence. And this has become the main scenario animating uh, Chinese military strategy really since uh, the early 1990s or for the entire uh, post-Cold War uh, period. Um, let me turn now to the present or the current strategy. I want to talk about the goals, some of the details. I want to contrast it with the 1993 strategy and then talk about some of uh, the new elements. Uh, this is the strategy that was uh, put in place in the summer of 2014. Uh, the name is uh, the name given to it by the Chinese is winning uh, uh, informatized local wars and I'll unpack what all of that means in a minute. But first, I wanted to talk about the goals uh, that were associated with this strategy. These goals come from the 2000 um, sort of 15 uh, defense white paper, which is a document that the Chinese armed forces typically release every two years, although not, not entirely. Uh, sometimes there are larger uh, gaps uh, when they are released. And the, these, the, the 2015 one in particular is entirely devoted uh, to China's military strategy. And um, in fact, uh, you know, 
contains uh, many details about the 2014 strategy, even though these strategies in principle are, are, are historically have been very difficult sort of to study. So some of the main goals are as following, right? To safeguard the sovereignty and security of China's territorial land, air, and sea. And this, this um, clearly identifies uh, contested uh, uh, sovereignty and territorial disputes is really one of the main uh, focuses of the strategy. And China's outstanding disputes today, as I've mentioned, are the border with India. There's actually a smaller dispute with Bhutan, although the dispute with India is quite large, about 125,000 square kilometers. And then disputes over the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, uh, the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea, and the Spratly uh, Islands in the South China Sea. And all of those maritime disputes, by the way, also include uh, conflicting claims to maritime jurisdiction or to maritime rights. Uh, the second goal is, is entirely about Taiwan to resolutely safeguard the unification of the motherland. And uh, this, I would submit, right, is the most important goal of of China's military or objective in China's military strategy. This is sort of the pacing uh, threat, if you will, given the way in which unification uh, is linked to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Then you have other goals uh, that also reflect new ways, perhaps, in which military force might be used in the future to safeguard uh, China's security and interest in new domains, to include uh, the space and cyber domains, and even what Chinese sources refer to the electromagnetic uh, domain. Um, to safeguard the security of China's overseas interests. Of course, one uh, key element of Chinese foreign policy over the last two decades has been the way in which uh, uh, Chinese firms and Chinese citizens have moved overseas in search of, of economic opportunities, such that China is now much more sort of integrated into other regions of the world, but also then vulnerable uh, to what happens in those regions. And uh, this includes um, a variety of potential uh, uh, subsidiary tasks, such as uh, evacuating uh, Chinese uh, citizens from conflict zones, or even uh, securing sea lines of communication carrying uh, important um, goods uh, from different parts of the world uh, to China. And we've seen uh, sort of Chinese efforts uh, in this regard in, in, in the unprecedented uh, non-combatant evacuation operation in Libya, going back to 2011 and even earlier, uh, sort of the start of the anti-piracy patrols on the Gulf of Aden. Final goal of the current strategy is to maintain strategic deterrence and carry out a nuclear counterattack. Uh, from the Chinese standpoint, the strategic deterrence is more, it has a somewhat different connotation than it does in the United States. And so when, when, when Chinese military sources talk about strategic deterrence, they refer to sort of the combined uh, deterrent effect of both conventional and nuclear uh, capabilities. Uh, so it's strategic in sort of a, a broader sense than simply uh, focusing on what we might describe as strategic weapons or in particular nuclear weapons. And then of course, it, it talks about carrying out a nuclear counterattack, which is the key to China's deterrence, i.e. having a secure second strike uh, that deters another country from uh, considering attacking China with nuclear weapons first. And at the end of the talk, I'll touch briefly on uh, China's approach uh, to nuclear weapons. So let me uh, go through uh, now um, in somewhat perhaps of a turgid way, uh, the way in which um, uh, or the, the current 2014 strategy uh, meets all these different elements uh, or identifies all, all the different elements that I mentioned at the start of the talk. So here, right, the main strategic component is Taiwan, but also the United States to the, to the degree it would uh, aid uh, a, a Taiwan in its defense or come to, to Taiwan's aid if it were attacked. Uh, this means that the main strategic direction is the southeast. Uh, again, this is sort of all oriented uh, from Beijing's perspective. So looking southeast, 
um, of course, is where Taiwan is situated off the coast of Zhejiang and Fujian provinces. This, this, this because of the United States means that it's sort of expanded to include uh, certainly parts of the Western Pacific as well, because the United States would come to Taiwan's aid um, on the water and in the air uh, through the Western Pacific. The basis of preparations for military struggle are the kinds of conflicts uh, that China thinks is going to fight in the future are what are described as informatized wars. And informatized here is a really clunky translation of a Chinese term, xin uh, hua, uh, which means sort of the, the application of information technology to war fighting and to combat power uh, generation. And so the simplest way to think about it is, is the role of informa information technology in, in what is sometimes described as the kill chain, uh, by which uh, you, you start out with uh, surveillance and reconnaissance to identify targets. Uh, you process that information in, 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 in various ways, and then you uh, command forces to sort of conduct operations against those targets. Uh, and, and of course, information sort of technology and information is key to this entire endeavor uh, because it allows you to be more precise, perhaps be more nimble, to be more rapid. And this really is the way in which China believes uh, wars will be fought in the future. And China's come to this belief by very closely watching um, other wars in the international system. And in particular, uh, the way the United States has fought uh, going all the way back to the Gulf War when this was uh, described as high technology conflicts up until uh, the present. And in the US context, this is often described uh, as net centric warfare. And the Chinese understanding is pretty similar um, to the US one because they've studied it uh, very closely. The main form of operations or how China is going to fight is what's described as integrated joint operations. And this is emphasizing uh, how joint joint operations, in fact, need to be such that you could take you know, simply a unit from uh, your naval forces, a unit from your air forces, and perhaps a unit from your ground forces, combine them all together into one sort of strike package to be able to conduct uh, the greatest effect that you can on the battlefield versus kind of having your army, navy, and air forces operate more or less independently, perhaps in a coordinated fashion, but certainly not like in a joint or in an integrated fashion. Uh, sort of to highlight, um, some of these points, uh, the, the current uh, strategic guideline or the current military strategies, basic guiding thought for operations is informa information do dominance, preci precision strikes on strategic points and joint operations uh, to gain victory. So of course this highlights uh, the way in which uh, information is seen as, as pervasive and the key uh, to victory in the future in terms of how one organizes uh, one's armed forces and deploys them. Uh, the role of precision strikes and, of course, joint operations. But also importantly, uh, the, the post-Cold War strategies um, also have something known as strategic guiding thought. So this doesn't, this never characterized the total war strategies. Um, and this is important because it really reflects the fact that, that China would like to prevent war from occurring if it can and wants to prevail in crises uh, should they erupt. And of course, military forces would still play a very important role in these conditions. And so the strategic guiding thought here is to shape favorable situations, uh, comprehensively manage crises, and then resolutely deter and win uh, wars. Now, what I thought I'd do briefly is just kind of contrast the current strategy with the 1993 strategy, which in my book, I argue is the last major change in military strategy. And I want to highlight you know, the areas of continuity and, and then where there's some uh, really uh, significant uh, differences. And there's one really significant one that has to do with uh, sort of the maritime uh, domain. 
So um, what this slide tries to do is uh, on these same criteria, just to sort of compare and contrast. And so you can see the strategic opponent, right, is still Taiwan in 19, you know, from 1993 to 2014, but the US has played a greater role. This has led to sort of an adjustment of um, uh, the strategic direction, but nevertheless, Overall, right, this is, these are still both examples of local war strategies. And so that's very much an area of, of continuity. Uh, the 1993 strategy sort of identified high technology conditions as being uh, central. Um, uh, and then this sort of, this was reconceptualized by the PLA to be informatized conditions. So this way, the 2014 strategy is very much kind of a natural sort of outgrowth in many respects from um, the previous one. Uh, you can see both focus on joint operations, although uh, they're characterized a little bit differently because China's understanding of joint operations evolved in the two decades uh, from 1993 uh, to 2014. Um, and one can see kind of this evolution in sort of the basic guiding thought uh, for military operations. The 1993 guiding thought was, I think, a bit more simplistic, focusing really just on the integrated uh, operations uh, element and, and sort of Precision, not quite precision strikes, but you know, being very selective in one strikes versus just focusing on mass, whereas uh, the 2014 strategy really highlights dominance. Uh, but then in both strategies, you see in the end, the strategic guiding thought is still very much focused on how to um, sort of manage crises uh, to deter war if you can, and then to, to win war or to prevail in war if deterrence fails and uh, war, war occurs uh, nevertheless. So in some senses, uh, there's pretty significant continuity. I would say the biggest discontinuity is probably the basis of preparations for military struggle and how that shift you know, moves from sort of high technology conditions to informatized conditions, and also the broadening of the sort of opponent uh, and the strategic direction uh, to focus on uh, the United States as it relates uh, to Taiwan. But there's other one really huge difference I wanna draw our attention to, which is the maritime domain. And so the 2014 strategy was the first strategy of all nine, right, to identify uh, a particular domain of conflict at kind of as being strategically uh, relevant and strategically important. So historically, all of the strategies never identified a domain because they were implicitly, all the previous strategies never identified a domain because they were implicitly basically you know, ground force or army dominant or land-based uh, domains that were sort of identified as most important, right? After all, it's the People's Liberation Army, not, not kind of the, the People's Liberation, you know, joint force as it were. And so there's always been a very heavy kind of influence of the ground forces in all aspects of the PLA. So the 2014 strategy called for highlighting maritime military struggle and preparations uh, for maritime uh, military struggle. Um, which uh, is, is a direct outgrowth of the way in which not only uh, I think Chinese views of the Taiwan conflict evolved, but also the way in which uh, maritime issues more generally have become much more prominent. And some of you may recall that in the, was it the 2007, in, in the 17th party Congress, I believe Hu Jintao sort of identified China's ambitions to be sort of a maritime power, which has then been further sort of emphasized in the two in, in the 18th and 19th party congresses now to be sort of you know, China's ambition to be a maritime great power. And so this is all sort of reflected in, in the military strategy. 
And the other key element in the 2014 uh, strategy was that uh, there is a, a change in uh, what we would describe as a service strategy. So in addition to these national sort of uh, military strategies that I've been talking about or these strategic guidelines, each of the services in China has their own kind of strategic guiding principle or strategic concept, which we can call the service strategy. And uh, in the 2014 strategic guidelines, it indicated right that there, there was a change in the PLA Navy's uh, strategy from focusing just on near seas defense or the sort of being able to sort of prevail in conflicts as they would occur in the bodies of water immediately adjacent uh, to China to this to combining near seas defense with far seas protection. Uh, far seas protection um, um, has more of a reactive element and includes a lot of uh, 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 sort of the protection of overseas interests that I talked about before, but certainly uh, also uh, conceptually at least, right, could develop to have a, a greater warfighting uh, connotation uh, in the future. Um, and then lastly here, I just wanted to flag what is typically viewed as the, as the near seas, um, a subject uh, near and dear uh, to Andrew's um, own uh, research. Um, so why was uh, the strategy adopted in uh, 2014? I think there are two main reasons. Uh, the first is organizational. Um, so some of you may know that at the end of 2015 and really the start of 2016, the PLA uh, started to implement unprecedented reforms. Um, so unprecedented in my estimation or my judgment, like the, the most significant reforms of the PLA in you know, since 1956 or 1958, when, PLA, when, when the PLA set up this general staff department model that they had borrowed uh, to some degree from the Soviet Union. And so in the 2016 reforms, the general sort of staff model was abolished and all of the subordinate uh, elements of, of the four general departments were sort of placed directly under the Central Military Commission. You had a clear division between sort of um, sort of lines of reporting for commanding forces in combat versus uh, for developing uh, forces for future use. You had the creation of theater command or the sort of the, the shift from theater, from military regions to theater commands and theater commands would be um, sort of part of that, that, that command chain um, and, and, and many other changes as well uh, that, were, that were fundamentally premised on improving the PLA's ability to conduct joint operations. And the basic reason I think why this strategy was put in place when it was, since it wasn't a major change when compared to some of the ones that preceded it, was to provide the high level sort of strategic guidance or strategic rationale for pursuing a change in strategy. And I say this because the, the reforms that began in 2016 were, were, were foreshadowed uh, at the third plenum of the um, 18th party Congress, right? That dot, like the proposal, uh, that came out of that or the communique that came out of that plenum clearly said right, that, that major reforms uh, would occur and then they sort of unfolded over, over a period of time. And around this time, Xi Jinping was quoted as saying, we have extensively explored the command system for joint operations, but the problem has not been fundamentally solved. And it could only be fun fundamentally solved in my view by, forgive the pun, literally breaking all the China in the general staff system uh, reorganizing all of the elements su such that uh, the ground forces were no longer uh, dominant and on par with all of the other services so that uh, it would be easier for the PLA to be able to conduct joint operations uh, in the future. So that was a huge driver uh, in the 2014 change. But then also uh, the fact that 
right, there were new threats on the horizon, and in particular, uh, those associated with the maritime sphere. So the white paper also uh, draw, draws our attention to this claim that, right, safeguarding maritime rights and interests has been a longstanding task, and now is one that is of a strategic importance such that it will be included in uh, the strategic guidelines. So there's this open question as to whether or not there has been a change in uh, China's military strategy in 2019. It's one to which I did not have an answer and uh, more work here is required, but I wanted to at least share with you why I think a change may have occurred, which is starting in 2019, uh, PLA sources, most notably the PLA Daily, which is the newspaper of uh, the PLA, began to use a new term to describe China's military strategy. So in uh, orange, you see what was used after 2014, and this is sort of the, the military strategic guidelines in the new situation. You know, after Xi Jinping came to power, many things were described as being part of the new situation. But in 2019, uh, uh, that term almost completely disappears in orange and is replaced by what is in blue, namely uh, uh, China's military strategic guidelines for the new era. Um, and so whenever there is a change in terminology, right, um, you know, lights go off in my head, or, or you know, that that maybe there's been a, that this is reflecting a deeper change. Um, so I think there are two possibilities here. I think the first is that there really wasn't a change, but the 2014 strategy was relabeled or rebranded to be more consistent with uh, the elevation of Xi Jinping thought and the way in which everything after the 19th party Congress was really identified as being part of the new era. Therefore, it really wouldn't work uh, to continue to describe uh, the, the military strategy as being uh, under the new situation because that, that term was no longer being used and the new era was being used not just in the military domain but in many other uh, policy domains. Um, and there's, there, there, there is, um, uh, or, or reasons why this might be the case, I think would, would include that uh, the 2019 defense white paper, the most recent one really didn't talk about um, any way in which strategy might've changed apart from sort of having a new way of talking about the strategic guidelines. Um, however, uh, one great challenge in studying military strategy in China is it's much easier to get data on earlier strategies than it is to get uh, data on sort of the most recent strategy. Uh, so it, it could certainly be the case that a change has occurred uh, but we don't simply know what the, the parameters or the content of that change has been. Uh, so this would sort of be, a, in my view, a partial change to the existing strategy because one still sees references, of course, to informatized local wars and to uh, integrated joint operations and even to the same strategic guiding thought. But if it, it is a partial change, <clears throat> it might have elevated uh, uh, the importance of the United States uh, as US-China relations uh, have deteriorated in the last four uh, to six years, such that uh, the PLA now assesses the US to be an even greater threat uh, than it uh, was uh, before, and how this might play out sort of will remain uh, to be seen over time. So I don't have an answer here. I welcome uh, thoughts and comments from others, but I wanted to throw it out there. Uh, last two slides. So um, at the 19th Party Congress in 2017, uh, the work report delivered by Xi Jinping outline China's ambition to have sort of quote, world, a world-class military, world-class forces by uh, 2049 or the middle of the 21st century. 
And this raised a question in many minds uh, whether or not um, this re reflected a change in strategy. My judgment is that it did not. I ended up sort of digging deep into how this concept had been used and came, you know, came to the conclusion it was never really defined uh, by Xi Jinping or by others. And to the degree it was defined, it was described as a forced development concept or a forced development goal representing China's aspirations, right, to have one of the great militaries in the world uh, by 2049 uh, or world-class. So world-class in Chinese is ilio uh, or shirjia ilio, kind of sort of top tier, if you will. Uh, and other world-class militaries today are described as being the United States, Russia, uh, Britain and France, and sometimes uh, even uh, India. And so this is not necessarily sort of an, an exclusive club from China's standpoint, but does reflect the ambition to be as good as anybody else, right? That's kind of what world-class means. Uh, but what it does not mean or what it does not reflect is uh, any kind of global uh, military strategy or, or any change away from local wars to some sort of global power projection. In my view, right, for good reasons, the PLA is very much still focused from a war fighting and military operation perspective on uh, East Asia. And even though it has greater interests overseas, and sometimes military forces can be used uh, for presence operations or civilian evacuation operations, it doesn't yet have a sort of global uh, military deployment aspirations. Um, we can talk more about that in the question and answer. Finally, uh, I've said nothing so far about China's nuclear strategy, in part because it's not nearly as dynamic as China's conventional strategy. Uh, China, since uh, it's testing its first atomic bomb in 1964, has pursued uh, a, a nuclear strategy key to developing uh, what's known as an assured retaliatory capability or the ability of its uh, nuclear forces to survive a first strike and be in a position to retaliate. So if you can survive a first strike and be in a position to retaliate, then it's much easier to deter other countries from attacking you first. And so uh, this is also sometimes described as a second strike posture. Um, China does not view nuclear weapons as useful for war fighting, even in a conventional conflict or uh, in this idea of a nuclear war fighting, uh, which did characterize some uh, Soviet and US thinking during the Cold War and very much sees uh, nuclear weapons as only having one uh, function or purpose, which is to deter uh, nuclear attacks or to deter uh, nuclear coercion. China currently has about 225 warheads. Uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency estimates this will double over the next decade. It's pursuing a pretty significant um, modernization and expansion of its force. But I would argue uh, that uh, that expansion and modernization is focused on uh, strengthening its um, ability to survive a first strike and to be able uh, to retaliate. So with that, I'll conclude. And uh, thank you all very much uh, for coming today. And I look forward uh, to the conversation. Taylor, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. And it clearly draws on your important combination of closely examining uh, demonstrably authoritative uh, Chinese sources and uh, continuing to uh, have discussions with uh, actual PLA officers and, and strategists. Uh, that, that really offers a powerful combination of, uh, of insights and I think a, a durable foundation uh, to build this research on. I'm clearly not the only one who thinks so because we already have nine questions in the queue. I'm mindful that we already have, we have a hard stop at 145. Um, I will uh, bundle the questions uh, for Taylor as best I can 
I will get through as many of these questions as we can. Um, if we run into real time challenges, uh, everybody please accept my apologies in advance. And I would always uh, commend uh, Taylor's website, uh, taylorfravel.com, where his research and in insights can be found as well as his Twitter feed, where he applies them to uh, current events. So uh, looking through the initial set of uh, uh, questions here, um, Neil Glazer from uh, Brown University uh, is, is interested in asking about uh, China's island building in the South China Sea, how it differs in intent and purpose from uh, US military bases uh, throughout the world. Um, like, likewise, on this, uh, on, this, uh, on this broader issue of uh, US and China military comparison, uh, Mark Selden uh, states, uh, you contrast US and allied strengths uh, versus an isolated and surrounded China, uh, but uh, he, he'd like a discussion of the significance of US military uh, bases in the Western Pacific and the changing technologies uh, that lie uh, behind uh, the, the strategy. So um, per, uh, finally, perhaps we could bundle with that uh, a third question, the extent to which asymmetric warfare capabilities have played into China's military uh, uh, strategy and in what areas does it uh, currently hold uh, asymmetric capabilities vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. Uh, so some initial questions to start with, uh, Taylor, if you could offer us your thoughts. Great, thanks. Um, <clears throat> let's see, starting with um, island building and sort of how that compares with uh, US bases. So um, I'm guessing most people know, but in case anyone uh, uh, doesn't, right, in, in 2014-15 timeframe, uh, China reclaimed extensive land at the seven features it occupies uh, in Spratleys. Um, and on three of these features, it uh, built a very large, what I would describe as sort of forward operating bases uh, for Chinese air and naval forces. So each of them has a 10,000 foot runway, uh, hardened hangars for, I don't know, 24 you know, fighter jets, uh, six bombers, high base shelters for missile systems, uh, and then given the nature of the reefs, sort of semi-enclosed harbors uh, where uh, uh, naval ships can anchor. Um, and so far, China has not uh, deployed uh, significant forces onto these uh, islands. So there, I don't believe, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's ever been a, a, a PLA Air Force or Navy jet or bomber, but there have been uh, some recon you know, reconnaissance transport planes and there's been some missile systems um, that were sort of revealed a few years ago but um, um, they've not been fully garrisoned and there, there perhaps have some reasons for that given the harsh climate but nevertheless they have great potential um, because you could put you know 60 72 aircraft fighter strike aircraft there uh, associated bombers a variety of missile systems and so i think china certainly put in place uh, the infrastructure by which it could use uh, military means to exert much greater influence over uh, the South China Sea. I think to date, China has uh, focused on uh, using its Coast Guard and actually most notably this week, its maritime militia, uh, a topic that Andrew uh, has studied uh, extensively uh, by uh, dispatching up to 200 or roughly 200 ships 
uh, to an unoccupied uh, reef um, uh, in a different part of in the Spratleys called Whitson Reef, although I believe it has a different name um, 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 for the Philippines. But nevertheless, right, China has relied mostly on sort of sort of almost you know, surging uh, Coast Guard and in, in times maritime militia forces in uh, to the South China Sea. Um, now this, you know, in terms of, and apart from, um, apart from the, the, the Chinese base in Djibouti uh, in the Gulf of Aden, right, these uh, three uh, Spratly features are the only uh, military installations uh, not in sort of continental China or in Hainan uh, Island, right? And so in that sense, uh, they're, they're definitely uh, uh, forward military um, uh, uh, bases. Now, um, in terms of, uh, of overall uh, size, I don't think that they necessarily compare with uh, the size of U.S. bases uh, in Japan in terms of you know how many uh, forces uh, one could put on them. But uh, nevertheless, they are significant given uh, sort of where they're located, and uh, there are no uh, U.S. bases. Although there are certainly access points, there are no U.S. bases right anywhere uh, adjacent to the South China Sea. Although the U.S. sometimes operates out of Singapore uh, and Malaysia, um, so I, I think they were developed in a very specific context as the South China dispute uh, was was escalating in the mid 2010s. Uh, China was, was I think looking to make a decisive move um, in order to consolidate its position and sort of reclaimed uh, land there uh, for those uh, reasons. Um, um, Mark. Selden asked about the significance of U.S. bases in the Western Pacific and some of the technologies uh, behind the strategy. I mean, I think from China's standpoint, of course, right, the, the bases are significant, especially because um, at least in, you know, this sort of island chain framework, uh, you have a, a lot of uh, U.S. military um, sort of for, you know, assets forward deployed uh, in and around in different parts of Japan, from Okinawa up to uh, some of the other islands. Um, uh, the U.S. and the Philippines have a vi visiting forces agreement. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of U.S. military activity in the Philippines under uh, sort of President Duterte's uh, leadership of the country, uh, but I think the infrastructure is in place, and there there were some agreements from the Obama era that would allow the U.S. Uh, to I think to return, um, especially to a variety of air bases, if if the Philippines were uh, willing uh, to welcome them. So this clearly is something that, that I think you know does shape. China's sense of sort of being kind of bottled in in East Asia, that it has to kind of deal with uh, the United States. I think it would certainly uh, prefer not to. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, what price is China willing to try to sort of move the U.S. out of the region? I think so far it's taking a very gradual approach, um, and we'll probably focus more on trying to drive wedges between sort of the United States and its allies than uh, sort of engaging in a major sort of a military confrontation. But nevertheless, in, in a Taiwan context, right, these, these bases are what would help facilitate uh, U.S. involvement. And so China views them uh, negative, negatively for that uh, reason. Uh, the technologies behind the strategy, um, I mean, at the core, it's, it's, it's just sort of, you know, the, the power, computing power, right, is really what enables this. But obviously, uh, it's the whole network and constellation of systems. Uh, you know, our satellite reconnaissance and, and other reconnaissance uh, tools that allow you to really gather tremendous amounts of information and have much greater sort of 
quote, battlefield awareness than in the past, and then being able to process that information uh, through 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 information technology uh, to, to sort of share that information um, uh, or and then to, to sort of synthesize that information at the command level and then be able to uh, sort of disperse the relevant information uh, to, to, to military units in the case of a, a conflict or a war. So it's really a whole suite of everything we would associate with kind of you know internet 2.0. And now of course China's talking a lot about um, this idea of intelligentization. Journalhua, which I think focuses, uh, you know, sort of the next level of new emerging technologies around machine learning and artificial intelligence, and exploring uh, how they can be used uh, on the battlefield way to help aid all of these processes in terms of gathering and synthesizing information. But also, you know, for, and this is not just a, a, an issue with China. I think many militaries are looking at AI today, but also trying to automate things, which I think probably very dangerous um, from a military perspective, uh, but nevertheless, that's the appeal, I think, of, of some of those uh, technologies. In terms of asymmetric capabilities, uh, it's a great question. I mean, China in many ways has, uh, I don't think this is really fully appreciated, but uh, you know, in, in my book, right, China's military strategies are ones that it has developed either when it was clearly the inferior power uh, or it was believed to be itself to be inferior in military capabilities. So in the total war era, right, it was the inferior power versus the Soviet Union or the United States from a military perspective. And it was always developing uh, asymmetric strategies uh, in that sense. Um, and even going back to the Civil War period, right, until the very end, it felt as if it was an inferior um, uh, um, actor. And this is in, in many ways the origins of Mao's idea of active defense, which was that um, when you are the inferior actor, you have to work really hard uh, to create local superiority to achieve uh, victories on the battlefield. And then you have to really be able to turn the entire correlation of forces later on in the conflict. And so uh, China's really always had uh, ha had this focus. Um, I think today, uh, you know, some, some of the most notable um, uh, asymmetric capabilities uh, or the one that's made most memorable would be this anti-ship ballistic missile system. Uh, something Andrew's also uh, written a lot about, so please feel free to chime in, Andrew. Um, but this idea, really from the late 1990s, that uh, somehow you could uh, launch a missile and into the you know, into the atmosphere, guide it, uh, and, and, you know, guide a warhead to hit a moving target at sea. Um, so you don't. So in other words, you're not going to contest sort of U.S. carrier dominance with your own fleet of 12 carriers, but you're going to uh, try to sort of negate uh, that capability. Uh, by using um, um, this missile instead, right? So it, it's quite an impressive uh, engineering feat. Um, I think there are you know, different views as to how capable it is. And, and there, there are, of course, um, some questions about uh, the so-called kill chain in terms of sort of every step needed in order to make sure it's effective from, and in particular kind of tracking targets at sea, but I think it's a problem that China's working very hard on solving. So that's probably the, the, the best example. Ballistic missiles, uh, which China has a huge uh, arsenal of conventional ballistic missiles, including short and medium range, and even some inter intermediate range uh, conventional ballistic missiles, is another a key element of what is often described as kind of an, an asymmetric capability. Thanks. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, a good range of topics. And now, uh, Professor Bill Overholt has the next question, and I'll ask him to ask it directly. Thank you. Taylor, thanks for a, a, a marvelously illuminating talk. Uh, the, the big issue of, of the day seems to be Taiwan. Uh, 
lot of Chinese leaders talk about now focusing on Taiwan, they've pretty much eliminated their non-military options. Uh, from what you've seen, do you think they're actively preparing a military option, uh, which they might use, uh, or reunification? Uh, and are we passing a tipping point where uh, China has the capability to uh, e either take over uh, against Taiwanese and U.S. resistance or uh, to deter uh, U.S. willingness to, to uh, defend Taiwan? Um, great question. So maybe that's easier to take the second one first. So if the scenario is, is like the all-out invasion, which would require an amphibious assault, um, which of course is a very challenging um, kind of military uh, campaign to execute because you're so vulnerable when you're, cross, you're crossing the ocean and then uh, it's pretty difficult uh, to, to sort of secure your landing. So I think for that scenario, no, the tipping point has not yet been reached such that I think Chinese, the Chinese military leadership would feel confident that they would be successful. Um, there are of course scenarios short of that um, to include a blockade scenario, to include um, seizing Jinmen or Mazu Islands off the Chinese mainland coast, perhaps seizing Pratis or Dongsha Island, maybe even seizing the Penghu's. Uh, those are all probably, um, you know, militarily feasible today. So, I, so, so it, it is still a political calculation whether or not uh, China wants to uh, sort of push forward on Taiwan in, in that respect. Uh, so this, I guess, is a nice segue back to your other question, which is that I don't think that they ha have extinguished uh, the non-military options. And the military option in Taiwan, at least historic, at least in the, in the post-Cold War period, right? Um, uh, you know, China has talked a lot about using the threat of military force in a deterrent way, right? And then trying to pursue sort of political means of unification or at least bring, you know, starting talks, however you want to sort of characterize that. And so um, I still think it, it is playing that deterrent function versus sort of the brute force function, which is to just try to solve the problem militarily uh, because uh, of the costs associated with, I think the kind of operation that, that would be most or that would allow China to achieve unification, right? One problem with the blockade, for example, is it could go on for a very long time. Uh, and, 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 and PLA writings talk a lot about sort of the problems of protracted conflicts, also from their perspective, right? And this would allow, you know, blockade would allow time for other countries to mobilize and to come to, to support Taiwan. And that would also, you know, in some ways, uh, perhaps place China in an uncomfortable position, deciding if it wanted to escalate more against other countries and not just Taiwan. And so I think when one thinks about the broader political calculations, they are still very uh, complicated and, and I think there's lots to consider. I have still the view, right, that China wants to, wants to bring about unification politically and not militarily, and that it wants a negotiated outcome and not simply at the sort of surrender table, right? It wants to sort of negotiate it without having to fight, but it views uh, the threat of fighting, right, as, as making negotiations 
uh, more appealing or more credible. And so that threat is 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 growing and it's going to continue to grow. And it, I think sort of a way point might be seeing China um, more explicitly kind of brandish that threat as it tries to bring about talks versus kind of jumping over that step and just trying to bring about a military solution. Thank you. Taylor, uh, this, this is great. Uh, the questions keep accumulating. Uh, clearly there's tremendous interest in these uh, timely topics. I'm mindful that we have fewer than uh, 10 minutes left. So I'm attempting to bundle uh, the remaining concept, uh, questions conceptually uh, to give you a chance to address them however best you see fit. Um, I have uh, four uh, basic uh, categories. Uh, the, the first category is uh, this, uh, this uh, attendee is particularly hoping that you could uh, speak more about uh, Japan specifically and uh, US allies more broadly. Um, how is Japan uh, discussed uh, in these uh, key doctrinal documents, uh, particularly in the post-1993 era and is there any discussion of possible uh, Japanese involvement vis-a-vis uh, -a, -vis a Taiwan uh, contingency? Um, second, and building on the concept of allies, uh, how is China responding uh, to the Quad and uh, the US uh, Indo-Pacific uh, strategy? Um, third, uh, there's interest in hearing any further insights you can offer on uh, China's uh, approaches toward uh, India and Bhutan, uh, particularly, uh, I think, the border uh, disputes. And uh, I'll note that you've done some of the uh, few specific studies on the Bhutan uh, dispute, which is not widely uh, known about. Um, and finally, uh, as a sort of catch-all uh, question, uh, you're, you're clearly very, uh, very careful in looking specifically at what the documents say and what China's doing, but what might be any potential prospects for uh, further outward emphasis activity um, uh, by China uh, in the maritime dimension, or even as one of the attendees asks in terms of uh, further uh, territorial uh, expansion and consolidation on uh, China's part. Um, I know that's a lot of questions in a short time, but uh, we'll appreciate whatever you can leave us with in the five minutes remaining. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'll go in reverse order. So, um, because it touches on some you know, territorial disputes, which is a subject I've I've looked at in the past. I think. Uh, if one looks at China's territorial claims uh, from sort of 1949 to the present, the claims themselves have been pretty stable in terms of the territory that China has disputed with its neighbors and what it has claimed sovereignty over. In some cases, like Bhutan, to sort of bring in that question, it's just been a little unclear uh, because you know, that particular conflict is incredibly hard to study because neither China nor Bhutan really talk about uh, where all the dis disputes lie. So there's there's been a sense perhaps that China's claims have grown a little bit with respect to Bhutan. Um, um, but so I'll just leave that, that ambiguity there, but take India as another example, right? The claims 
in the three sectors have been quite stable. Um, so I, I don't view China as claiming new territory beyond what it has claimed in the past. So I don't view it as expanding uh, the scope of what it claims in that sense. But clearly, China is much more capable than it's ever been in the past, and so is able to uh, assert itself in these disputes much more vigorously uh, than in the past. And so that's what, what I think we will see in the coming decade is a continuation, perhaps, of the last decade, especially in the maritime domain, where China has just asserted itself uh, much, you know, much uh, more vigorously uh, than ever before. Uh, in some ways, relying on its armed forces and trying to really ensure that those uh, conflicts are resolved in China's uh, favor. Um, but I don't see greater sort of irredentist Chinese claims. I think I did this calculation in my book. I, I can't quite remember the exact calculation, but China's only claimed right, a small fraction of the territory that was once part of the Qing at its height. And you could think of the territory of the Qing at, at its height as kind of the outer limit of uh, potential irredentist claims and China simply um, hasn't uh, pursued them in that way. So um, I think it's more consolidation of the existing claims versus uh, expanding into uh, new areas, but in the maritime domain, right, that's gonna be pretty big. Um, um, in terms of Japan and, and US allies, uh, so in, in at least these PLA sources, oftentimes countries are never mentioned explicitly. Right, and so Taiwan is often described as a large island. Um, so, so I have this book on amphibious assaults of large islands, and it's you know how to attack Taiwan, but it's you know, I don't think Taiwan is ever mentioned. And so sometimes it can be a little hard to parse. Uh, but I would say um, you know, Japan is not, in my in my estimation, not featured strongly, with the exception of. U.S. bases in Japan, which do uh, feature in um, different discussions of um, kind of operations China might conduct in a Taiwan conflict, because you know, there all there's a whole chapter in some of these books on fire, you know, joint firepower strikes and attacking air bases, which includes not just presumably air bases in Taiwan, but also uh, U.S. Uh, air bases in Japan and potentially even uh, U.S. air bases in Korea. And so there are a lot of indirect references, but uh, Japan has never really been featured and has never really been a driver of China's military strategy. Um, the Senkakus in some ways are not, you know, a large enough military problem to, to warrant a lot of sort of separate attention. And so I think it doesn't, so, so the point that you know, Japan is not mentioned explicitly doesn't really mean there's no thinking about the Senkakus at all, but, but I think it's not sort of the kind of military uh, problem uh, that China's thinking about. Um, but this could change, um, of course, as uh, the situation in, in East Asia evolves. And so I'm really just thinking of the sources you know, I, I used in the book and many of them, you know, the last of them were published around 2011, 2012. Um, Time frame, right? So it is possible that there's been more discussion in newer sources that simply uh, we now no longer have access to. Uh, China's response to the Quad and to the Indo Pacific. Um, I mean, I think China, you know, whether or not will be successful enough, I think China is trying perhaps to play some divide and conquer with the Quad, although, uh, you know, China's put Australia in the doghouse and is not trying to, I think, divide and or drive a wedge between the US and Australia, you do see a pretty concerted engagement of Japan in the last two to three years. Uh, before the pandemic occurred, Xi Jinping was due to uh, travel to Tokyo for a summit, um, uh, you know, the first time since uh, right, the nationalization of the islands. And even with India, um, I think China, you know, will never say this publicly, but 
China's willingness to pursue the recent uh, uh, disengagement uh, in, the, in the areas where there have been standoffs since last summer. And the language around all of that suggests that China is trying to achieve a reset with India. I don't think they'll be successful, uh, but, but I would attribute that you know, to, to, to uh, or as part of a Chinese uh, response to the Quad and this idea that um, you know, China wants to sort of improve relations with different components such that the Quad doesn't, uh, from, from at least the Chinese standpoint, reach, their, reach its full potential. Thank you. Taylor, uh, on behalf of uh, the entire audience of uh, more than 125 people, uh, I'd like to thank you for a wonderful talk. It's been my honor to uh, support this event. Um, in about a week, we can look forward to the recording on the Fairbanks Center website and the YouTube channel. Um, in the meantime, uh, I ask the forbearance of all whose questions we didn't have time to address in every particular, and encourage everyone to consult uh, taylorfravel.com and to follow uh, Taylor on uh, Twitter. It's very easy. His handle is at Fravel, at F-R-A-V-E-L. Thank you very much. Thank you.